Let's pray together. Our Father, we are delighted to reflect upon you and all that you have done, how we see your, your matchless wisdom as we look into this book. We thank you for the way that you have used men, inspired them by your Holy Spirit, given them the ability to write these things down so we might have a permanent record to study of these tremendous truths. And Father, we know that we have a lot to learn. The more we study, the more we realize that. We pray that you will just help us to have a, a real grasp of, of your truth. We pray that as we, as we are confronted with truth, we will be willing to, to respond and, and change accordingly. Because we know that in your truth, there is life. We'll praise you for what we know you're going to do in our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. I was studying uh, yesterday um, uh, quite extensively in Romans chapter 1 um, where one of the, uh, one of the major um, uh, parts of the last part of that, that chapter deals with paganism and the deterioration that comes, that which produces pagan people and a pagan nation and so on. And uh, it, it just occurred to me in the light of our study this morning that it begins, it begins right at the top uh, by saying that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven um, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They suppress the truth. The, the idea is simply that um, when they are faced and confronted with truth, they, um, they don't like that. It's against their, their old sin nature. And as a result, they, they, seek to, they seek to push it aside. They seek to hold it back. Uh, they don't want truth invading their life. They don't even mind uh, knowing what the truth is, but they don't want that bothering them. They don't want it to bother their conscience. And a little bit later, it goes on and says that they exchange the truth of God for, for the lie. The lie, of course, is that man can live independent of God. A man has this notion. It came directly from Satan that man can, can make it in life or in any area um, without God. That somehow we are so constructed uh, that, that we were created independent creatures and that um, we have no responsibility to anybody. We exchange the truth of God for a lie. When you, when you start pushing truth away, there's deterioration until finally you come to the place where you, you say, I can make it without God, I don't need God, and you step aside from any, uh, from, from any control of God in your life at all. Truth. Now, we are dealing in our text, in uh, Proverbs chapter 11, with this idea of truth. And uh, you find that it's a key idea in the Old Testament, key idea in the New Testament. And you cannot, you cannot have uh, life unless you also have truth. Truth and life are tied together inseparably. And so you have this, uh, this sequence again of, uh, 
as righteousness tendeth to life, so he that, uh, or the, the wicked, uh, excuse me, verse 18, the wicked worketh a deceitful work, but to him that soweth righteousness shall be a sure reward. And then as righteousness tendeth to life, he that, uh, he, so he that pursueth evil pursueth it to his own, own death. That little couplet uh, there in those two verses. The word for sure, the sure reward, is the word ameth, which comes from Amman. Greek transliteration comes across amen, and amen means um, it's sure, it's true, it's uh, it's solid. It's uh, the the word ameth has that idea of solidity to it, but it's tied to the whole concept of truth. And so we, we have, uh, are just going to uh, talk for a little bit today again about the idea of certainty and dependability uh, in Scripture. Talk about truth. And uh, we already have seen uh, point number one, which is that uh, truth applies to God as a part of His nature. He meets applies to God as a part of his nature. It applies to scripture. That's the second thing. And we were right uh, just starting to talk about uh, number three, which, uh, we, which says that emeth is the means by which men know and serve God. And we gave you Joshua 24, 14. Now let's pick up right there and let's look at 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 2. And verse 4, uh, the point I was making at the beginning, let me just uh, uh, bring that to a conclusion. Don't suppress the truth. Don't push the truth aside. We find out God is truth and the Scripture is truth and find out that we are to serve the Lord in truth and so on. Don't push that aside. It's dangerous, all right? 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 4 that the Lord may continue his word which he spoke concerning me saying if thy children take heed to their way to walk before me in truth in, in dependability in certainty with all their heart and with all their soul there shall not fail thee said he a man on the throne of Israel now there is a conditional promise there's no throne today in Israel, other than the throne that will be revived when Jesus Christ returns and reigns. They've gone for many, many years without a throne in Israel. And the reason was because when they had the truth, they suppressed the truth. They pushed the truth aside and exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Look at Psalm 26. Psalm 26. And verse 3. For thy loving kindness is before mine eyes, and I have walked in thy truth. Now notice in this psalm, you, you just take a minute and notice how that affected his life, all right? Look at verse 4. I have not sat with vain persons. 
neither will I go in with dissemblers. I've hated the congregation of evildoers and will not sit with the wicked. I will wash my hands in innocence. So will I compass thine altar, O Lord, that I may make known with the voice of thanksgiving and tell all thy wondrous works. And it's interesting because one of the things that happened immediately on the tale of men who suppressed the truth, it says when they knew God, they would not acknowledge him as God. They wouldn't say, God, you are God. Neither were they thankful. But the man who walks in truth is the man who hates evil and uh, despises evil men for their evil. By the way, one of the things you learn, uh, it's rather a strange thing to us sometimes when we see a, a man like David saying, I hate him, I hate him, I hate him, I hate him. Come to the New Testament, it says don't hate anybody. You're supposed to hate your enemy. I mean, love your enemy instead of hating your enemy. And yet in the Old Testament, everybody hated everybody. And the reason is because the, the strange quirk in the Semitic languages is that, that there, was no, there was no intelligent way you could separate between a man and his character. And uh, therefore, there wasn't a way you could express clearly that you hate his sin but love him. Unless every time you use it, you would, you would say it in plain English or whatever. But uh, in the Semitic language, it's just a number of quirks like that with a very limited vocabulary uh, comparatively. The people made no distinction between hating a person and hating his sin. And uh, when you take the Old Testament in the light of the New Testament and understand God's attitude toward the sinner, which is an attitude of love, and yet an attitude of hatred toward the sin, then you can read that back into the Old Testament and realize that that's precisely what they're talking about. That when you, when you have a man who is wicked, a man who is doing wrong, a man who is a sinner, what it's saying is that God hates the sin. He still wants to redeem the sinner. And so that's what David is saying here. So he hates the congregation of evildoers. And he won't sit with the wicked. He washes his hands in innocence. He, he's, he does in a, in a sense like Pilate did, saying, I wash my hands of what you're doing. Same in Psalm 1, where you walk not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the... Uh, uh, sit in the seat of the scornful and stand in the place of sinners and so on. And uh, uh, he says, and the reason is that I make known my voice of thanksgiving. See, rather than not being thankful, he was thankful. And tell of all thy wondrous works. Lord, I have loved the habitation of thy house and the place where thy honor dwelleth. And so, so on. So you see, there's a, there's a tremendous, tremendous uh, difference in the man who, who applies truth and the man who suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. Psalm 86. Psalm 86. In verse 11. Teach me thy way, O Lord. I will walk in thy truth. Unite my heart to fear thy name. I will praise thee, O Lord, my God, with all my heart. I will glorify thy name forever. Again, I, you know, I, I, this is something that I, I, I didn't, uh, I wasn't thinking of as I prepared this text. Uh, but just, you know, that whole idea from Romans 1 is in my mind 
uh, and and it, it's exciting to me. I'm getting all excited here just looking at it because because you notice that that here and two passages in a row right now. Uh, what we're going to come to yet, I don't know, but these two passages in a row, right here, he walks in truth, and the very next thing he says, God, you're God, and I'm thankful, all right? I'll praise your name. I'll glorify your name. It's precisely the opposite of what the person in Romans 1 did. When he knew God, he glorified him not as God, neither was thankful. You walk in truth, that's going to happen. You are going to, you, you walk in truth and you are going to be thankful and you're going to glorify God as God. You don't walk in truth, you suppress the truth, you buy Satan's lie and you are not going to be thankful and you're not going to glorify God as God. And I, I think that even though that text in Romans 1 is talking about the pagan and talking about a man who obviously is an unbeliever, nevertheless, there are what I like to call practical atheists that are believers. That is, they, they uh, with their lips, cry out, O God. But with their heart, they're far from Him. They, uh, there are people who, who uh, acknowledge that God is God, but live like there's no God. And uh, there's, there's all too many of those characters around. Belie unbelieving believers. Uh, they believe in the existence of God. They, 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 they uh, you know, do all of the things uh, on Sunday that a Christian is supposed to do, but yet there's, there's an inconsistency in their life. And the reason for that, even with a believer, is that when they're confronted with truth, they suppress the truth. They would rather live like they please. So they push truth aside, and what happens? It's not long before they no longer glorify God as God. And they no longer are thankful. And the deterioration process begins. But David just is... Uh, responding beautifully. Why? Because he's walking in truth. Let's go to Psalm 91. Look at verse 4. He shall cover thee with his feathers, and under his wings shalt thou trust. His truth shall be thy shield and buckler. Truth as a shield and buckler. So you don't have to be afraid for the terror by night, nor for the arrow that flieth by day, and so on. Isaiah, chapter 38. Isaiah 38. And verse 3. Hezekiah now in his great prayer to the Lord, he said, Remember now, O Lord, I beseech thee, how I have walked before thee in truth, in ameth, in dependability, certainty, the idea of ordering one's life in accordance with God's truth, and with a perfect heart or a whole heart, and have done that which is good in thy sight, and Hezekiah wept bitterly. That's when the Lord extended the life of Hezekiah at his request. So, it, the emeth is the means by which men know and serve God as their Savior. Number four. Emeth is a characteristic of those who come to God. Those who come to God. They mark it in the truth. 
rather than in error. Exodus chapter 18, verse 21. Let's go back and uh, read verse 20. And thou shalt teach them ordinances and laws, and shalt show them the way wherein they must walk, and the work they must do. This is Jethro's advice to Moses. Moreover, Thou shalt provide out of all of the people able men or men of moral strength such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness and place over uh, such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties and rulers of ten. Men of truth, men that are, that are dependable but not just dependable in the, in the uh, natural sense, but dependable because of their link to the truth of God. Look at Nehemiah. Nehemiah. Chapter 7. And verse 2. And I gave my brother Hananiah... And Hananiah, the ruler of the palace, charge over Jerusalem, for he was an emeth man. He was a faithful man. He was a man of truth and feared God more than many. Look at um, what is one of my favorite Psalms, Psalm 15. If you want some fun sometime, <clears throat> then uh, ask a person at work if he would like a sure formula for success. Psalm 15 is it. If you want a sure formula. Psalm 15 promises that if there are certain characteristics in your life, you'll never fail. Never. Right? Never notice what they were? He that walketh uprightly and worketh righteousness and speaketh the truth in his heart. He that backbiteth not with his tongue nor doeth evil to his neighbor nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor in whose eyes a vile person is despised but he honoreth them who fear the Lord. He that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not he keeps his word, in other words. He that putteth not out his money to interest, nor taketh reward against the innocent, he that doeth these things shall never be moved. Now believe me, that's a study in itself. But the thing that we want particularly is in verse 2. He speaketh the truth in his heart. Truth that is based upon God's truth. Zechariah chapter 8. Zechariah chapter 8, verse 16. These are the things that ye shall do. Speak every man the truth 
to his neighbor, execute the judgment of truth and peace in your gates. When you know God and you receive the truth rather than suppressing the truth, then your life will be one of acknowledging that God is God, giving Him glory, and you will be thankful, and your life will be characterized by truth. You'll speak the truth in love. You'll be one uh, who, who reflects the truth that is put in your heart by God's Holy Spirit. Number five, Ameth, truth, certainty, is often coupled with our old friend, Kased. Kased is the word for mercy. And again, we were just talking about mercy in, in Proverbs 11, weren't we? And the, the importance of the merciful man. Well, we often find mercy and truth uh, given as a, as a sort of a summary of the character of God. It's not as though they're necessarily the most important attributes because all of the attributes of God are important. But when you want to kind of sum it up in a, in a quick word, then you speak of God as a God of mercy, as a God of truth. And uh, so turn to Genesis 24. Look, just a few verses where this is done. Genesis 24. Verse 27. And he said, Bless, this is Eliezer uh, at um, uh, the house of uh, Rebekah. And uh, it says, And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of my master Abraham, who hath not left uh, destitute my master of his mercy and his truth, his loyal love and his truth, I being in the way the Lord led me to the house of my master's brother. Coupled with... Uh, the idea of loyal love or the idea of mercy. All right, Psalm 61. Psalm 61 and verse 7. He shall abide before God forever. All prepare mercy and truth which may preserve him. In the Old Testament again you find over and over again characters, uh, it, you, have, you find places where the character of God is, is prayed for as being a characteristic of man as well. The, the need for God to give his mercy so that I will be merciful. He give his truth so I will be truthful. That idea is very prevalent in the Old Testament. And that is implied here. Prepare mercy and truth which may preserve him. Both the mercy and truth that God has and that which is reflected in his life as well. Psalm 85 and verse 10. Mercy and truth are met together. Now mind you, truth, truth would have a, a tendency to be the severer side of the love of God. That's the severe side of the love of God. Mercy is the, is the tender side of the love of God. And here's a situation where, where mercy and truth are met together and where righteousness and peace have kissed each other. 
Actually, that happened literally on the cross of Jesus Christ. God poured out His wrath in truth and justice upon Jesus Christ so that God was freed as a result to show mercy to us. In spite of the fact the truth, really, if people say the truth hurts, the truth does more than that, the truth condemns you. When God tells us the truth, you look at God's true evaluation of man. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. That's the truth about you. That's what you really are. And truth will condemn. But mercy and truth together, my, what a combination. And God, only God could have figured out a way to reconcile the, tr the, the two. Then it goes on in verse 11 says, Truth shall spring out of the earth. And righteousness shall look down from heaven. Yea, the Lord shall give that which is good, and so on. Look at Psalm 115, verse 1. Psalm 115, verse 1. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory, for thy mercy and for thy truth's sake. Now, in this psalm, Psalm 115, you have, you have the same setup, the same situation that you have in Romans 1. Notice what happens to the people. Wherefore should the nations say, where is now their God? But our God is in the heavens. He has, he has done whatever he has pleased. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness. The result was idolatry. Idolatry leads to sexual perversion. And men ho hold the truth back. They're going to end up there. And this, is the, this psalm is acknowledging the truth of God as well as His mercy. And then comparing it to the pagan nations who have said, Where's God? And the result, they made their own gods. Why? Because that truth for which he's rejoicing here has been suppressed in unrighteousness. They exchange the truth of God for, for a lie. Man will have his gods, but either he will express his praise to God because he is made in God's image, or he will reject the true and living God and he will make gods in his own image. Be one or the other. Reduce whatever gods you have to man's size. If you know anything about Greek, Greek mythology, you, you know that, that the Greeks had, a, had, had gods that, are, that were uh, com comparable to the worst human beings they'd ever met. And uh, if they, they saw a man who was, who was perverse and a man who would steal another man's wife and, and, uh, and would uh, rape her and leave her, uh, then they had a god like that. If they had a man who would steal his neighbor blind, they had a god like that. And they, they, they had all these multiple gods and all of them were, had these human foibles. And the, the, the bad thing was that here was this God that they pictured as being all-powerful. He could do anything he wanted, and yet morally he was corrupt. And so he would go and do all of these bad things, and nobody could stop him. And so another God would come along, and, and uh, he would have another foible. Most of the Greek, uh, Greek gods that, were, that were, uh, os uh, uh, were ostensibly good were usually weak. They didn't have a whole lot of power, a whole lot of strength. They wanted to do something, but they couldn't. 
And uh, that's, again, that whole idea of process theology uh, where, where you reduce God in certain areas uh, to, uh, to weakness and, uh, and then attribute all kinds of goodness to him. But you see, the, the pagan, the man who's turned his back on God, can't put the two together. He can't have a God who is totally good and totally powerful and all of the rest. And, and so the Greek gods were a tremendous example of that. And that Psalm 115 deals with that very thing. It's how ridiculous that they would worship these dumb things that they've made when all the time the, tr the, the truth is in the heavens, truth and mercy in God. Proverbs 14. Proverbs 14. And um, look at verse 22. Do not they do uh, do they not err that devise evil, but mercy and truth shall be to them that devise good. Mercy and truth. Look at sixteen six. By mercy and truth iniquity is purged, and by the fear of the Lord men will depart from evil. Look at chapter twenty, and verse twenty eight. Mercy and truth preserve the king. And his throne is upheld by mercy. So it's often associated with kesed, with mercy or with loyal love. It's also often coupled with peace. Let's look at Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 39. Boy, I'm glad you turned that down. I was sitting up here starting to sweat. Anybody warm? I don't want these guys to go to sleep on me. Keep it. Rather to have them freeze than uh, go to sleep, right? <clears throat> Isaiah 39, verse 8. Then said Hezekiah to Isaiah, Good is the word of the Lord which thou hast spoken. He said, Moreover, there shall be peace and truth in my days. I'll give you one more. Jeremiah 33. Jeremiah 33. And verse 6. Behold, I will bring it health and cure. I will cure them and will reveal unto them the abundance of peace and truth. Peace in the Old Testament, uh, shalom, means wholeness. It's that which is complete, that which is harmonious, that which is brought together in one. Uh, that, that's the idea of this, uh, this very uh, common word. But here again, it's linked with, with uh, truth, truth and peace together. So, you know, when you go through the Old Testament and begin to see the use of Amith and Ammon and the other related words, it becomes very clear that there really is no truth, there is no security, there is no dependability, there is no certainty apart from God. But just as the, the wicked have uh, only an empty wage for his work, which is our proverb here. Just as he has an empty wage, that which, which uh, is like a bag with holes in it, like a broken cistern which can hold no water, uh, as, as the wicked works a, a deceitful work, a, a work that has the appearance of something good, appearance of something valuable, but the bottom drops out of it, and uh, there is an empty wage for his work. So the man who does righteous deeds brings his work into that area of certainty, that area of truth, 
that area of dependability and you can count on something. You can depend upon a reward. And you see, the marvelous thing is that it is a, it is a reward that, that um, may be stretched off into eternity. We were talking during the men's retreat when, when uh, we were talking about this whole matter of <clears throat> understanding God and, and so on. And uh, we were talking about that little, that little puzzle. I, every once in a while, I uh, sort of as a um, pastime, when I grab a few minutes, um, I uh, do puzzles. I'm a kind of a puzzle nut. And uh, <clears throat> I uh, don't remember how this is laid out. I remember how to solve it, but I don't remember how it's laid out exactly. But uh, there are, there are uh, some dots uh, four dots, I think, something like that, and you're supposed to you're supposed to join them in, in a straight line without uh, without um, um, without crossing lines and so on. And I, I can't again, I can't remember exactly how it works out. You've probably seen the same thing, but the the idea is that that man puts a box around it mentally, and because he puts a box around it mentally, he can't do it. Because the only way the puzzle can be solved is by extending the line beyond the box. And then when you bring your lines back, you, you have succe successfully uh, joined the dots. And uh, there are very many, uh, there's a number of variations and I, I just can't remember exactly how it's laid out. I'm sure some of you could. Uh, but uh, the, th this is such a tremendous picture of what I like to call a divine perspective. As long as you put a box around God and God has to fit into your intellect, you're never going to understand God. You've got to go by faith beyond the, the, the boundaries. As long as, you, as long as you force God to do everything in time, within this time-space concept, then I'll tell you something, it's going to be frustrating. You know, you see a guy like George who was, who was doing so much good, all right? And had so many <clears throat> more things that he wanted to do for God. And you see him plucked away from this life. And you say, good grief. You know, he could have, he didn't even live his, uh, his three score and, and ten. Didn't even live his seventy years. And here he's plucked away from us. Now, we got word yesterday that our good friend Joe Mullally, a lot of you may have remembered Joe. Joe was the big, big hulk of a man, a football player, played uh, for Ohio State, almost uh, made pro, and uh, just a, a mountain of a man, and loved the Lord, and, and uh, went back to uh, Idaho State to uh, teach, and uh, got interested back there in reaching people in the cults, and came out uh, to Concord, and uh, he's been living up in Concord, and been doing such good work in terms of, of, of helping people understand how to work with other people uh, in cults, founded an organization called uh, Christ for the Cults, and uh, really a, a tremendous guy, and he suddenly died of a heart attack yesterday. And you say to yourself, why? Now, I'll tell you something. If I did not have an eternal perspective, I would be just like the pagan. And I would scream out, Lord, this can't happen. Whenever anybody finds himself in a situation where he can't understand what God is up to, it generally is because it lies beyond his frame of reference. I'll be quite frank with you. It doesn't bother me at all that George died except my sorrow because I'm going to miss him. It's me. 
It's now. But as far as the future is concerned, as far as where George is now, I've got an eternal perspective. Death's good, not bad. Paul, the apostle, you know, must have shocked these people who had been so steeped in paganism, which has such a limited point of view, and they have such an unknown into the future. And he says to the Philippian church, uh, he says, he says, I want you to know I'm in prison. And he says, they may kill me. And I hope they do because to depart and be with Christ is far better. But nevertheless, it's needful for me to remain here for your sakes. And I got a hunch that God's going to leave me here for a little while. But, uh, you know, death's no sweat. And why is death no sweat? Because of an eternal perspective. Anytime I talk to somebody who says, man, I'm scared to die. I know what's wrong. He's lost his eternal perspective. He's gotten himself fixed. He's like in the Pilgrim's Progress, the muckraker who can't see the celestial city. He's too busy raking muck. All right? Lift up your eyes, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Focus your attention upon him. Look on the things Paul said, which are, are, are not seen, rather than on the things that are seen. For the things which are seen are temporary. The things which are not seen are eternal. We're not citizens of heaven. We're citizens of earth. And the ungodly man, the false teacher, the one who who believes it's important to circumcise a person, that person who is the Judaizer, that individual is one whose, Phillips puts it this way, this world is the limit of their horizon. That's it. That's the limit. It's as far as they can see. They can't extend off here, so they can't solve the puzzle. We're going to talk tonight in preparation for the Johnny films about uh, suffering. Suffering is no problem when you have an eternal perspective. Terrible suffering. Intense suffering. Being paralyzed like Johnny is. Is no problem. No problem at all when you have an eternal perspective. People who have a problem with that have an earthly perspective. I remember when Kurt broke his neck. We were on our way up to Tahoe to see what was left of him. And uh, we had no idea at this point what his condition would be. The doctor didn't know. Didn't know whether it would be paralysis, spend the rest of his life in a wheelchair. And Gloria had just read Johnny, Johnny's first book, and that didn't help any, you know. <laughs> and I was thinking on the way up there, I thought, I wonder, I wonder what God has in mind for Kurt if he's paralyzed. I just wonder what God has in mind. I got all excited. Now, I won't say that I was disappointed when I found out he wasn't paralyzed. But I, I could have lived with it. And I could have said, thank you, Lord. Why? Because God is making mistakes. You know, he's too wise to make mistakes. And he's too loving to be unkind. I wrote something in my Bible here the other day. I'm probably going to refer to it a lot. It's, I should be able to quote it without uh, looking. But I haven't uh, been able to yet. What is it? I know it's here somewhere. I looked at it just yesterday. It's the wrong Bible. I've got it in my other Bible. <laughs> How about that? When it's not there, what do you say? You know, and then you realize you got a wrong. I got this old King James version. You know, that's uh, that's the problem. I wrote it in my other Bible, but uh, I think what it says is this: When my problem is too big for me, so is God. <laughs> 
when my problem's too big for me, so's God. So, you know, why should I worry about it? See? God wants us to understand his rewards are not always immediate. There is sometimes suffering. There is sometimes problems. You may have to give up something. I think of some of you guys who, who have committed yourself to, because of the clear scriptural teaching on the subject of divorce, and you've come to an understanding of that, and you know that, that as a divorced person, it's not right for you to remarry. We've got a bunch of gals like that. We've got a bunch of guys like that. And they've committed themselves to, to wait God's timing, which would be the, upon the, the death of their former mate before they would ever marry. And I'll tell you, it's a sacrifice. It's a sacrifice. Right. But it's a sacrifice for guys to do that. We've got to pray for these guys. It's especially tough. And some of them are trying to restore their marriages even though it seems hopeless. Boy, you know, what a tough thing. What a difficult, what a difficult problem. And uh, people with an earthly perspective will say, oh, I know, but God could never require that of you. God does. I mean, Scripture is very clear on that. If you don't twist it, it's very clear. And I'll tell you something. God requires all kinds of things of us that cost. But guess what? The reward end of it is absolutely secure. You are not ever going to be God's debtor. You give up something for the sake of the cross, He is going to pay. And He is going to pay with interest. The dividends that you receive by the sacrifices that you make because of your witness and testimony, sacrifices for the truth, are going to be rewarded. And beloved, I'll tell you, there is going to be a sure, certain, dependable, in truth, reward for you. Now the word for reward is the word saker. And it means actually higher. Wages. Gain. Remember, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God pays wages. The nation of Israel was told, you, uh, you are, uh, uh, this was in the book of Malachi, it says you are, among other things, taking home your wages, and you're putting them in your pocket, and there's a hole in your pocket, and it's going right out the other end. You're putting it into a bag with holes. And you reach in your pocket and you don't find anything except the hole. They say, what happened? How come the money is slipping right through my fingers? And God says it's simple. You haven't been faithful. The faithful man never has holes in his pocket. His bag never has holes. He doesn't lose out. The, the, the wicked, the wicked thinks he's got something. He says, I finally made my fortune. And all of a sudden looks and it's gone. But the man that's serving God in righteousness, he has a sure wage. He will get his wage. A um, number of texts that we could look at. Let's look for a minute at Revelation 22. And verse 12. 
tell you, listen, this is scary stuff over here. Um, let me let me begin at verse six. This is now uh, the swan song, John's swan song. It's the last word. You always want to listen carefully to what is the last word from the Lord. Okay, verse six. He said unto me, These words are faithful and true. New Testament equivalent of Emeth. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show unto his servant the things which must shortly be done. Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the words of the prophecy of this book. And I, John, saw these things and heard them. And when I had heard and seen, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. And then he said to me, See thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren, the prophets, and of them who keep the words of this book, worship God. And he saith to me, Seal not the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. Now, look at verse 11. This is, this is the scary thing. He that is unjust. Now this is the way people are fixed in eternity. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. Forever. He that is filthy, let him be filthy still. Forever. He that is righteous, let him be righteous still. Forever. He that is holy, let him be holy still. Forever. Get the implication of that? You are becoming today what you will be throughout all of eternity. <coughs> A fixed state. Alright? Now look at verse 12. And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me, to give every man according as his work shall be. God is going to reward. A sure reward. No one could ever take that away from you. What God has promised, he will do. Now let's go back to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 32. Isaiah 32 verse 17. And the work of righteousness shall be peace and the effect of righteousness quietness and assurance forever. The work of righteousness shall be peace. The effect, a long range effect of righteousness is quietness and assurance forever and my people shall dwell in a peaceable habitation in a sure dwelling and in quiet resting places. When it shall hail coming down in the forest and the city shall be low in a low place. And so on. Psalm 19. Another one of those uh, super favorite psalms. Psalm 19. Look at verse 11. This is after it's talked about the law of the Lord being perfect, testimony of the Lord being sure. 
statutes of the Lord being right. It says that the ordinances of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More are they to be desired than gold. Yea, the much fine gold, sweeter also than the honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in the keeping of them there is great reward. Look at Psalm 37. Psalm 37. Look at verse 3. Trust in the Lord and do good. So shalt thou dwell in the land, and verily thou shalt be fed. Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he will give thee the desires of thine heart. Commit thy way unto the Lord, trust also in him, he shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth thy righteousness as the light, and thy justice as the noonday. There is a reward, gain which comes as a wage for services rendered. The word saker is used of a hireling. Um, and uh, that hireling is uh, is sometimes a soldier that is uh, that is uh, brought into an army as a as a mercenary uh, to help him deliver from from enemies. You have stories of that in Second Samuel, Second uh, Kings, and First and Second Chronicles, uh, where they they went out and hired a person for reward and paid him a reward for fighting. It's used of a hireling uh, that was was a skilled worker for a particular job. Uh, over in 2 Chronicles 24.10, Isaiah 46.6, it's used in that way. It's used of hiring counselors for advice in uh, Ezra chapter 4, verse 5. Remember the story of Balaam in, uh, the, in, in uh, Deuteronomy, uh, or excuse me, in, in Numbers, and then he's mentioned again in Deuteronomy and also mentioned in Nehemiah. He was hired for the purpose of cursing Israel. They gave him reward so that he would curse the people of God. Remember, God stopped his mouth so that he couldn't curse. He could only bless. Uh, Jude 11 speaks of him as a hireling in the, same, in the same way. Proverbs 26 verse 10 warns you against hiring a fool for any kind of work. But the word for hiring him is the word seker. The particular form that's used here is found only here and in uh, in Isaiah chapter 19 over in Isaiah 19:10 it's uh, it's it's a sort of a strange passage here is speaking about the fishers and they're casting their nets and it says they shall be broken in the purposes thereof all that makes sluices and ponds for fish. The idea of hiring men to, um, uh, to accomplish a certain job. And that is the only other, way, other place that this particular form is used. But uh, the idea is very clear uh, that uh, you are on God's payroll. And when you, when you do those things that are righteous, God is... Remember what Paul said uh, to the Thessalonian church? He says, God is not unjust that he should forget your labor of love, which you have done. You're not going to forget it. You know, the, the amazing thing is we forget. There's some little deed of kindness that we do quite naturally uh, because we, we love the Lord and, and uh, we become accustomed to doing this and that and the other thing. We couldn't possibly remember everything we've ever done. The time we slipped a $10 bill into an envelope to give to somebody anonymously just because we knew they had a need and 
and the, the, the time that we just did some little deed of kindness, we long since have forgotten about it. You're going to come before God, before Jesus Christ at the Bema, and He's going to say, uh, let's see now, this gem, <laughs> beautiful, isn't it? If it was on earth, it'd be worth billions of dollars. Don't have anything like this down on earth. And it's yours. And you say, well, why, Lord? Where did I get that? Well, you know, there was that person down there that had a need. Remember that? No, I don't, I don't remember. Well, the date was such and such. The date's right here, engraved on the bottom. <laughs> here you are. That's your reward. Precious stones. Gold and silver. Precious stones. Listen. You're not going to be God's debtor. God's not going to owe you. He's going to reward you. And you see, you're not working for wages. You're working for Him. What you do, you do as unto Him. You're not working for wages. But guess what? You can give them anyway. <laughs> and you leave the wage up to Him. I'll tell you, I would have liked to have been, I would have liked to have been in that, that last bunch of workers in the parable that the Lord Jesus told. You know? The master comes out and he says, uh, you go to work for me today, I'll give you a, a denarii, day's wage. They go out and they start working. It becomes apparent they can't get it done. So he comes back a few hours later and he finds some more men at the employment office and he says, uh, hey, you come to work for me. I'll give you a day's wage. They went and worked came about noon. Here's some more fellas there. He says, hey, you guys come work for me. I'll give you a denarii. Okay. Who worked for that? Glad. Half a day's work. Full day's pay? No problem. Then he comes to a bunch of guys a little later in the day and he says, tell you what. You go to work and I'll pay you what's right. I'll pay you what's right. I would have loved to have been in that last bunch. Go out and work and say, just going to trust him. He's fair. He's not going to let me down. I'm not going to worry about how much I'm going to get. I'm going to do the job. At the end of the day comes along, you know, and the first guys come along. Got my denarii? Yeah. Here it is. Thank you. Next guys, got my denarii? Yeah. How about you? You got my denarii? You bet. Okay. Uh, master, I'm the guy that came late. Uh, is there anything for me? Oh, yeah. Here's a denarii. A full day's wage for two hours' work. <laughs> you believe that? It is fair. The other guys come back and say, Hey, wait a minute. Hold it. How come? I mean, we should have gotten, if he's going to get one denarii, we ought to get two. The Lord says, You agreed to work for me for wages. I paid you your wages. But he was willing to trust me. You know, I don't want to work for wages. I want to trust him. Because he's trustworthy. And guess what? You know, your car can break down and your your uh, radiator can boil over like mine did yesterday, you know. And, and uh, you get uh, miles on your car and you say, Lord, don't you know I need a new car? And he knows. Don't you know this? Don't you know that? Don't you know that? He knows. You know what? He's never let me down. And I look around and I see people and I, boy, I wonder sometimes, I wonder sometimes about why people waste their time trying to get rich when all of the time 
getting rich is no is nothing because the real reward the earthly things are going to pass away but the real reward is going to be in glory I praise him for that you just serve him with all of your heart it's a sure reward we'll pick up on that next week Father thank you thank you for that sure reward help us Lord to understand things of this life are just things Lord we want to use those things as best we can for your glory but, oh, Father, I pray that you will help us, somehow help us, Lord, to keep our eyes off of those things. Help us not ever to make idols of them, but rather to just recognize that they are things that pass away. Oh, Lord, someday we're going to go first class. If there are cars in heaven, we're going to drive the best here on earth we're glad that we can just simply have the common and praise you for it we're not looking for our reward here we're looking for our reward in glory so help us to live like that help us to serve our employer today not with eye service as men pleasers but as men serving the Lord Christ we'll praise you in Jesus name